We're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So if you want to have that open before you, and uh, as we said before, it's on page 591, if you want to find that. And as you do, I don't know whether you've ever played the game. It seems to be quite a popular one with the younger people of Would You Rather? And uh, they come up with all sorts of different things. Would you rather this or would you rather that? And uh, as you just... Uh, Turning to that, and as we're just preparing, I just want you to think, to answer these questions, Don't, no shouting out, please, just in your head, but um, would you rather attend a funeral or a birthday party? Would you rather cry or would you rather laugh? Would you rather be criticised or would you rather be praised? Now, hopefully your answers to those questions uh, will become obvious when we go through uh, this passage, but it's interesting because uh, my answers to that those questions were certainly not, I don't think, what God's answers would be. Uh, if you remember last time in chapter 6, Solomon uh, kind of concluded um, by identifying that we're all kind of looking for a better life. We all want to, to feel that there's something better in the future. And if you look at most people's kind of social media, if you look at uh, TV or even just looking around you, most people's idea of a better life seems to be a pursuit of youthfulness, uh, of luxury, of wealth, and of fun. That seems to be what it means to have a better life. But Solomon actually concluded chapter 6 by saying, do you know what, we don't actually know what's good for us. We think we do, but we don't. And actually what is really best for us is something that only God can achieve himself. Now in chapter 7, Solomon goes on to talk about how to achieve that better life. What does it look like? And uh, I think you'll probably agree as we go along that it's very counterintuitive. It's certainly not uh, what the world is saying. And if I'm honest, it's certainly not uh, what I would be saying, having uh, not read this chapter or you know, not been walking with the Lord uh, for the amount of time that I have. So if you look at uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 are really a bit like a would you rather. They're a bit like a comparison. And he's basically saying that X is better than Y. And he goes through a series of things saying that in life... This is better than this. And I think the first one we could probably agree uh, with um, is that uh, a reputation based on uh, a realistic um, view of your life in terms of uh, a godly character and the outworking of that in terms of good works, that your reputation as a person is far better than trying to impress people with some kind of surface aroma of wealth and fame. He talks about uh, a name, a good name, being more precious, uh, being better than precious ointment. So the first one I think we could agree with, that actually uh, it's better to have a, a good reputation based upon the reality of who you are and what you do than to try and create something that looks impressive and people maybe buy into, but isn't actually true. It's just come some kind of aroma that comes off, but is very surface. The second... Uh, comparison is actually, I, I find, harder to kind of get my head around. And you'll see that in verse 1 again, and it's that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, how on earth is that? How can the day that someone dies be better than the day that someone's born? But when I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, if you've got a life well lived, if you're end, at the end of your life and people speak well of you and you can look back and say, you know, I've I've lived as, as well as I could. I've honoured the Lord in the way that I've lived. And actually now I've come to the point uh, where I can look at that. And that's already happened. 
But actually that day is better, in a sense, than the day of birth where nothing's happened yet. And actually you don't know what's going to happen. So you can look at that wonderful baby and, you know, you think, oh, it's, it's a wonderful day. But you don't actually know what's going to happen to that baby or what they are going to become. It's a bit like saying that the day of harvest is better than the day of sowing. And in a sense it is because you're actually reaping the fruit of it rather than just putting the seed in the ground. And if you think about our, uh, our first reading, Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a wonderful position to be in, to be able to say, I've come to the end of my life, but I've done what I can. And actually, there is fruit of this time of me being here on earth. But actually, if you think about what it means to be a Christian, let me put this uh, question in another way. What's better, the day that we enter the presence of Jesus, see him face to face in a world without pain and suffering, or the day that we entered the world of pain and suffering and had to live all this earthly life in grief and heartache? You know, that question, uh, that statement that the day of death is better than the day of birth is, 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 is so true for Christians. Because the day that we die, we enter this world free from sin in the presence of Jesus. The day that we were born on earth was just the start of really what has, if, if we were honest about it, being quite painful and miserable and difficult. Yes, there's moments of joy and uh, there's obviously a joy in knowing the Lord and walking with him. But life is tough. But for us, what a wonderful day when we enter the presence of Jesus. And my question is, is that your experience? Are you a Christian here this evening? Do you know that actually that day of death, you're going to be moving on to somewhere better than when you were born into this world? And you'll see that theme continues in verse 2. And he says that coming to terms with the reality of suffering and death is better than trying to avoid it. He talks about going to a place of mourning being better than going to a place of mirth. (coughs) So in a sense, going to a place where there's difficulty, where there's loss, can actually be more, it can be better than going to a place where it's just all fun and frivolity. Why? Because it makes us face the reality of life. Yes, it's great to to have fun, it's great to, to enjoy things. I'm not saying that birthday parties or anything like that or festivals are wrong. But what I am saying is that there is something very sobering, but also very good for the soul in having to face, to the, face up to the realities of life. Why? Well, because we have to face the reality that one day we'll die, unless we're still alive and Jesus comes again. One day we're all going to die. It's the only inevitable thing in life is that we'll all have to face death. And it's very easy just to try and avoid that thought, to avoid those difficult questions. And that's what a lot of the world is doing. It's just spending its time with entertainment and trying to avoid facing up to some of those realities. But actually, the um, death, thinking about death, should lead us to ask some really important questions that actually will be eternally significant for us. What is the purpose of my life? How should I be living my life? Where will I go when I die? And that's actually what brought me to faith is the first time anybody really close to me died, I thought, well, where are they now? They're not with me, so where are they? And that, for me, got me thinking 
about uh, eternity. It got me thinking about the purpose of life, what my life is all about, and, and what Jesus did on the cross. So for me, it was really true that actually having to face death of a loved one for the first time was the thing that actually brought me life. And verses three and four again follow on from that because he says, sorrow is better than laughter. <clears throat> now, again, this is one that's very counterintuitive, isn't it? I think if you ask most people on the street, nobody would say, well, I'd rather be upset and sad than, than having a good time and laughing. And yeah, mate, that might be true if we're just talking about fleshly, earthly things. But actually for our soul, for the bit of us that will go on, for that relationship with the Lord, sorrow can be better than laughter. Why? We'll look at the second bit of that. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Isn't that interesting to think that a sad face could actually be good for your heart? Now, I don't think Solomon is talking about some kind of morose obsession with death that you do see uh, sometimes with young people, especially on social media. That's actually just a a kind of self-pity, really, and it robs uh, life of all its joy and its meaning. He's not talking about that kind of obsession with death. And actually, if you look at the Hebrew words that are used here, the word for sorrow can mean grief or frustration or anger. And the word for better can mean joyful or glad. So actually what he's saying is that a sad, frustrated or angry face make a glad heart. And again, we might say, well, that doesn't really help because that's as counterintuitive as before. But let's think about this. If Uh, your anger or your frustration or your sorrow for sin bring you to the point of repentance and faith, then that's the best thing for the heart that there is. You know, a lifetime of entertainment and joy and uh, just trying to forget about the things of life, not having to face uh, your own sin or the sin of others, that is death to the heart. That just hardens the heart. But what a wonderful thing when our sadness or our sorrow brings us to repentance and faith. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Secondly, God sanctifies us and brings us inner peace and joy through hardship and suffering, not through pleasure. You know, the joy that we get from the entertainment of this world is is like a fizzy little effervescent tablet. It fizzes up for a while, but it's gone. If you're seeking a deep joy that lasts for all eternity, something that will get you, uh, get you through even the most difficult times, then that kind of joy and that kind of peace is wrought in suffering. It really is true that we only find that deep, deep peace through the difficult things in life. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For a light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Isn't that amazing that our afflictions, you know, Paul talks about light afflictions, but if you read his testimony, nothing about his afflictions were light. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. But what he's saying is there's something about those experiences that are actually working for him an eternal glory that nobody can take away from him. You look at verses five and six, we have our last kind of comparison. And it's that being corrected is better than being flattered. That actually having to face up to our failures and our weaknesses and being corrected for them by wise people is better 
than joining uh, the fools that are just trying to trivialise their sin, ignore their weaknesses, ignore their sins and just laugh off everything. You know, how this world loves to trivialise sin these days, to say, well, it doesn't matter, it's nothing, just to laugh it off. But actually, Solomon is true. If we want to become more like Jesus, and even really, if you want to improve in anything in life, you have to be able to face criticism to find out where you could improve, what you're doing wrong, and put it right. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Hebrews 12, 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <coughs> now if we go on to verses 7 to 10, we'll see that he changes slightly. So he's been looking at uh, X being better than Y, and you'll see in verses 7 to 10, he actually goes on to talk about what's not good for you. So again, we've kind of looked at this is better than this. In verses 7 and 10, he really highlights some things to avoid. And the first one is impatience and shortcuts. You know, he talks about oppressing other people or bribery. How easy it is just to try and get what we want to improve our lives by oppressing others and standing all over them in order to raise ourselves up. Or by bribery, by trying to pay our way to things. You know how often you see it in sport or big business that people are trying to make their lives better by either treating people badly or by bribery. And impatience never really gets you anywhere. You know, if you're really impatient, then you maybe do things that you're later going to regret. Think about Abraham and Ishmael. What happens when we're not prepared to wait? Because actually patience is vital for our sanctification. It's one of the things that God really uses, that, that, that need to persevere to make us more like Jesus. You know, Jesus had to persevere. He set his face like flint to the cross, and we must do the same. James 1, 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you, face, when you fall into various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The second thing he says that is uh, bad for you, that's not good for you, is anger. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> you know how easy it is to just fly off the handle in situations because of impatience or frustration uh, and, and pride of wanting our own thing. But the wise will take a step back. The wise see the bigger picture. The wise take a deep breath and don't automatically become angry. Why? Listen to James 1, 19 to 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, it's counterproductive, isn't it? Uh, counterintuitive. Sometimes we think, well, the way to get what I want, the way to a better life is just to get angry at all the things that are wrong. But what we find is it starts to eat away as it doesn't actually produce that righteousness that we require. Verse 10 came as a bit of a, a shock to me. I think uh, as I've got older, my favourite pastime just seems to be moaning that life isn't what it was, uh, that uh, modern life is not as good as it used to be. And I almost feel it's in my job description as a middle-aged Christian just to moan about the world and about everything. And I have to stop myself because I do seem to find negativity in, in most things. And it's very easy just to get caught up into that, oh, things ain't what they used to be. So why is that? Why do we always think the past is better? Why do we look on uh, you know, the country as it was when we were growing up and say, oh, it's much better than it is now? 
Why do we look at our childhood and think, oh, you know, our childhood was much better than the childhood of, of children now? Why do we look even maybe at our churches and think, oh, I remember the day when? It's so easy to do that, isn't it? And almost it feels like we're doing the right thing. But actually, we're not alone in that. The older priests in the book of Ezra, they wept over the new temple because they thought it wasn't as good as the old one. The Israelites in the deserts wished they were back in Egypt. But actually, Solomon says it's not wise to inquire into these things. It's not wise to dwell on the past. <clears throat> now, why is that? Well, I've come up with a few things. Maybe you can think of more. But one of them is that our memory is always biased, isn't it? We always have those rose-tinted glasses on, and we tend to forget the bad things and, and just think of the good things. And then when we look at the modern world, we look at all the bad things, and we forget the good things. Secondly, well, who are we to say what is actually better? You know, for me, it might be better the way that the world was, but maybe not for someone else. So actually, it's only an opinion when I say that the, the, the old days were better than the new days. Thirdly, we can't actually change the past. We can't go back there. And actually, the present is what God has given us to live in and serve him in. If all the time we're just spending our time <clears throat> thinking about how the, the past was and kind of moaning about it and groaning about it, what are we actually doing in the present to serve him? If God really wanted us to live in the past, then we just stay in the past, but we don't. Things evolve and things move on. And it's our challenges to serve him and honour him as things are, not as we'd like them to be or they used to be. You see, as we heard before, anger does not uh, produce righteousness. It doesn't matter how angry you get at the state of the world, wishing it was how it used to be when you were growing up. It's not going to change it, and it's not going to make you more like Jesus. You see, if we're always looking back, then we're likely to stumble moving forward. You know, if you don't know whether you've been watching the athletics, but if all the time that the runners were just looking back at where they, used, where they were, they'd soon fall over a hurdle or they'd soon trip up on themselves. We have to set our face forward. That's what Jesus did. And it's also what Paul did. Philippians 3.13. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal. You see, if we all the time thinking about the past... We're going to stumble in the future. And again, think about us as Christians. You know, our past, no matter how good it was, is never going to be as good as our future. Because what's our goal? To be with Jesus forever. And even nothing, no matter how good your past was, it will never be as good as your future if you know the Lord. In verses 11 to 25, he changes now. He's looked at what's bad for us, the things to avoid. Now he goes on to look at some of the things that are good for us. And you'll see in verse 11 and 12, he talks about wisdom. Now, wisdom comes a lot, obviously, in the Bible and the book of Ecclesiastes. And here he says, well, you know, he's honest, as he always is in Ecclesiastes. It's brutally honest at times. But money can provide a certain kind of defense. You know, people that are rich are able to, to buy all the security. They're able to have a nice car. They're able to have something in, in, uh, for a rainy day. They're able to have the best medical treatment, all those kind of things. So he's honest and says, you know, it can, uh, money can be helpful. It can be a defence against adversity or opposition. But what it can't do is give eternal life. It cannot give life. But wisdom can. Wisdom is a protection and life to those who seek it. And God-given wisdom is actually the key to being exercised by hardship. You know, some people will go through very tough lives, but if they don't know the Lord, it's all been in vain. They learn nothing about eternity. But God-given wisdom enables us to learn and be exercised by the past, even if those things are, are really uh, awful things and real hardships. 
It also enables us to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've just talked about. Wisdom leads us to eternal life. Wisdom opens up the truth of the word to us and leads us to repentance of faith. Secondly, Solomon says that submitting to God's sovereignty is the way to a better life. Look at verses 13 and 15. You see, God doesn't make life easy or simple, even for his children. He brings adversity as well as prosperity. Job knew this. He said in uh, Job 2 verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? God is working his purposes out in the straight paths and the crooked ones. The things that go well for you are from the Lord, but also the things that don't go well, those paths that seem to wind and go off at all different angles. God is working those out for our good. We can't smooth these out because the difficult paths are ordained for our good. If we made life easy for ourselves, then we'd miss out on a lot of the stuff that the Lord does when we struggle. As we've said uh, before in uh, Ecclesiastes, so we come in verse 15. One of the hardest things in life is to know that God allows good people to die young. He allows evil and wicked people to live long lives. We can't change this. We just have to accept it and believe that God knows what he's doing. And as he says also, we should enjoy enjoy the day of prosperity. I'm not saying that, you know, we can't enjoy the good things in life. But also he says that we need to learn from the day adversity. Both of them are there for our good. One to enjoy, one to learn from. The third thing he says is good for us is to be honest. And you'll see it's quite an odd passage when you look at it, verses 16 and 17. Now, he's not saying in verse 16 that righteousness and wisdom are bad and therefore we shouldn't have too much of them. That's not what he's saying. What I think he's warning against is that kind of self-righteousness, that worldly wisdom that sort of says that it's better than everyone else, that kind of holier-than-thou kind of attitude. And actually, we have a new name for it now. We call it virtue signalling. This idea that somehow I'm better than everybody else. I'm more wise. I'm more moral uh, than everybody else. And even I'm more moral than God. I'm better than God. You know, people define love in a way now that God doesn't. They're saying I'm better than God. I know what love is better than what the Bible says. And actually, what we're doing is we're just using our own standards of right and wrong to lift ourselves up from above other people and say, well, everything I think is right is right, therefore, what a wonderful person I am. And there's a real arrogance in that. But actually, not only is there an arrogance in that, but actually we begin to live in a fantasy world. Because what we're doing is we're not actually looking at what our heart truly believes. What we're doing is we're creating some kind of self-righteous image, some kind of angelic image, which we then portray to other people. And social media is terrible for this because what it does is basically people put it out there and everybody kind of likes it and and congratulates them. But nobody actually knows their heart. And the heart can be wicked. The heart cannot believe any of this stuff. The heart can be very self-serving. And really, if you think about it, it's just a modern day version of the Pharisee. You know, Jesus said they're whitewashed tombs. They look wonderful on the outside, but inside they're dead. And I think here this is what Solomon is saying. If you are too righteous in your own eyes then actually you're probably not being realistic. You're not actually having a realistic assessment of your own heart. You're just creating yourself an image because you want other people to praise you and think you're wonderful. And in verse 17, we've kind of got the opposite of that, where he says, and he's not saying that a little wickedness and foolishness is okay. He's not saying, oh, it's all right, you know, you can be a little bit wicked. Nowhere in Scripture is this taught. 
But the truth is we all have a tendency to sin and we all must fight that tendency. And I also think this goes for those that don't believe in the Lord, that actually, uh, you know, as part of a community in this world we live, we have a responsibility to one another to do what's right by one another. So even if we're not a Christian, it's important that we just don't go down this road of, of more and more depravity, more and more sin. And how awful it is to see that some people seem to, to, to take pleasure in or find some kind of self-worth or status from being as extreme and perverse as possible in all things that are sinful. You've only got to, to look at what's happening in the world. And some people just seem to be going down this road, being more and more sinful, more and more away from the truth. And just as a self-righteousness and that virtual signaling uh, character that we, we create, just as we can lose the reality of who we are in this kind of angelic creation, so people can lose the reality of who they are in this kind of demonic creation. They're almost kind of trying to provoke people by how kind of debased they're becoming. And the sad reality is not only do both positions dishonour God, but also those people lose the reality of who they actually are. Their heart becomes hard and they're unable to see the state they're in. They're unable to actually confess and repent. Why? Because they're not actually living, uh, you're not in touch with actually who they are. They're just creating an image and an image cannot repent and believe. Verse 18 says that true wisdom is only possible when we accept life as it is, ourselves as we are, and God for who he is. You see, that's true wisdom. When we acknowledge the state of the world, we acknowledge the state of our own heart, but we also acknowledge who God is, and then we respond accordingly. And that's the theme, really, of Ecclesiastes. Don't deceive yourself. Be honest about the world. Be honest about yourself, but also believe and trust in God. You see, we're all average in that sense. We've all got our strengths and weaknesses. We've all got our good bits and our bad bits. We all do what's right and we do what's wrong. None of us are perfectly good or perfectly bad. But it's so true, as we sang in our song earlier, that all of us have a helpless estate. You know, you think about these um, programmes where they go and do up an old uh, decrepit mansion. All of us, before Christ, are like that. We're all helpless. Our estate is helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We must be honest about that. A humble fear of God and our daily need for Jesus is the only way to avoid self-deception and self-righteousness. And that flows into verses 19 and 22 because he talks here about uh, wisdom guarding us. You know, wisdom guards the heart. The starting point for wisdom is humility, to acknowledge that we are all sinners by birth. Sin is a state of being, not just actions. There's no one righteous, not even one. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, you need to be honest about who you are. You are a sinner before a holy God. Verses 21 to 22, he he talks about the fruit of that. If you acknowledge that we're all sinners, it should mean that we're more gracious to one another. Because for every fault that you have, I have a different one. We should be slower to criticise other people's failings. Why? Because we know that they could criticise us. We should be slower to be offended by things that they say. Why? Because we know that we offend them by the things that we say. We should be less angry at them. We should be more gracious and kind. And it's important that wisdom does guard our heart. You know, the heart uh, is, you know, the, the kind of core of who we are needs to be guarded. It needs to be guarded from those around us 
that would do us harm. It needs to be guarded from, um, from uh, things that would take us away from the Lord. And it's only wisdom that can do that. And wisdom doesn't mean uh, just a collection of knowledge. You know, it seems to be we love information these days. We love to kind of know all that's going on, all that's being said by ourselves and other people. We love facts. But actually, a whole collection of facts without any kind of filter or ability to understand them or fit together or know how to respond to them, it's no good for us. And often it's pride. People that just want to know everything and just be like an encyclopedia of knowledge. It's often just a pride or a desire to control. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. True godly wisdom is different. It interprets and responds appropriately to situations. It provides a filter for information. It only concentrates on what's important. And that true wisdom can only come from God. We may search for it ourselves and in other people, but only God can help us. Only God can give us that wisdom. We'll never find it by our own efforts. And Solomon acknowledges that. He said, I've looked for wisdom in so many places, but I can't find it. He'd done everything in his power to understand and experience all life had to offer, but came to realise that he couldn't know it. And throughout life, you know, Solomon had so many uh, friends and allies and, you know, over a thousand wives and concubines, but none of them were truly wise. And actually, his, uh, his a thousand wives and concubines will actually lead him away from the Lord. So what's his conclusion? Well, you'll see it in verse 29. Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So his conclusion to this whole kind of matter of a better life is that God made mankind upright. God made mankind good in a relationship with him. But like Adam and Eve in our desire to be like God, we've all rebelled and followed many sinful schemes. This causes us to lack the wisdom that comes from agreeing with God. You know, that's true wisdom. Just agree with God. Agree with good what God what's right and wrong. Agree with God about the state of your heart. Agree with God about who he is. Agree with God about his promises. But if we don't agree with God, this results in all of those issues that we've seen in this chapter. Pleasure-seeking, people-pleasing, self-righteousness, self-pity, self-deception, pride, impatience, frustration. We think we know what's good for us and the way to a better life, but we don't. But God has provided us with the way to wisdom, holiness, and the good life, and it's a person. It's Jesus. He is what's good for us. He is better than everything. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in conclusion, do you want a better life? Well, by your own effort, you will never be wise enough. You'll never be good enough. The question is, are you humble enough to accept this truth? If you don't know the Lord Jesus here this evening, are you humble enough to accept that all of your efforts have not given you what you wanted? All of uh, your efforts have not given you that life that you wanted, that peace, that joy, that sense of meaning that will last you through to eternity? Are you humble enough to accept it? And are you humble enough to let Jesus be your wisdom, your righteousness, your right standing with God? Will you let him be your salvation? Will you stop trying to save yourself and trust in his work on the cross? 
1 Corinthians 1, 31. You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Amen.